This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Progressive, The Young Turks, comedian Lee Camp, U.S. Uncut, and Chris Priest, NPR, Media Matters, Counterspin, and The Jimmy Dore Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. We begin tonight with a question. Never been just fed up to breaking point. You think, you know what? Enough of the rat race and chasing some materialistic dream. I'm just going to chuck it all and sell my stuff and move to some fishing village, drink ouzo, eat grilled lamb all day, charm tourists with my lusty, full-of-life attitude while subsisting on a pensioner's stipend. <laughs> Sounds nice. And it is. Now, what would happen if an entire country had that idea <laughs> at the same time? I present to you Greece 2011! Young protesters were joined by the elderly, battling through tear gas and hurtling anything from incendiary devices to Greek yogurt. Young people! Young people and the elderly throwing incendiary devices and yogurt. I wonder who was throwing the incendiary devices and who was throwing the yogurt. <laughs> Those rioters are upset about proposed austerity measures that would end Greek citizen benefits, such as six paid vacation weeks a year and retirement with 80% pay and benefits at age 53. And word is, the rioting may spread when people find out Greeks get to retire with 80% pay at 53. How can Greece afford this? Funny story. With a population of 11 million, it has a debt of nearly half a trillion dollars. What the f***? Greece... 480 billion debt for 11 million people, you irresponsible children. That is like 44,000 dollars of debt per person. Oh, and don't give me that word. The United States has debt too. Yes, yes, we do have a 14 trillion dollars debt, but we have 307 million people, so ours works out to, as a, what's that, oh, 45,000 per person. <laughs> but we get to retire never. <laughs> hey, Greece, how are you guys so good with money? Now, you may be wondering, aside from the comical mental image of old Greek people throwing yogurt at the police, why should we care about the Greek economy? In the worst-case scenario, economists say, the Greek debt crisis could become Europe's Lehman Brothers, a catastrophic failure that freezes the credit markets and infects the U.S. economy. What? The, the U.S. economy? But that's where we live. Someone quick, get me some yogurt.
I don't like using the word rape as a metaphor, but the scandal involving the leader of the International Monetary Fund is almost a perfect metaphor for the IMF's role in the world. IMF Chief Dominique Strauss-Kahn is accused of attempted rape against an African maid in a luxury hotel in New York City. And while the truth of this allegation remains for the legal system to sort out, screwing people over in the third world is what the IMF is all about. For decades now, the IMF has required developing countries that are in financial trouble to devalue their currency, slash employment in the public sector, and cut government subsidies for such essentials as food and fuel. If the countries refuse to follow this, they don't get the IMF's bailout money, and their economies continue to go down the drain. This is coercion of the worst sort. It results in drastic cuts in the living standards of millions of people literally overnight. It leads to mass unemployment and mass suffering. The IMF is all about abusing its power to get its way, and that's kind of what Dominique Strauss-Kahn is accused of doing, too. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. We're joined by Asif Manvi live in Athens. Asif, uh, uh, how did Europe? Not, Thank you, Jim. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 obviously in Greece. Uh, first of all, uh, how does this affect Europe? First of all, how did Europe not know that Greece was in this type of financial trouble? Well, John, it's fascinating. <laughs> Ten years ago, when Greece realized that to cover their even at that time big deficit, they were going to need an influx of cash. They were very smart. They called an American investment bank. But, uh, but, but, let me guess. Goldman, Goldman Sachs. Sachs. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Goldman Sachs came up with a way to hide the extent of Greece's debt so European banks would continue lending to Greece and Greek people could continue retiring a few years after puberty. <laughs> The device they used to do it was called a currency swap. Oh, okay, so then the European banks who bought these swaps thought they were getting something fiscally sound when in fact uh, they, they were uh, a bit of in, in the parlance of Wall Street. Oh, oh, sorry, may I? Horse <laughs> Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. So now the European banks are in trouble. Yes, but after they bought the Greek bonds, Europe did something very smart. Just on the off chance that the bonds that they got from Greece contained horse they transferred the risk of these bonds to a third party using a device that could make mask the risk of these transactions called credit default. Uh, uh, may I? 
Swaps. Swaps. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Who is the third party? Well, that is the beautiful thing about this. Because of our inability to regulate the swaps industry, no one has any idea. <laughs> American banks, including the same ones who originally helped Greece create these horse swaps? Well, that is what the smart money says. So that's insane. Or in Wall Street parlance, banking. We've got Chancellor Angela Merkel, who's going to come into Washington this week. And uh, Germany does things a little bit differently and in some ways more successfully than we do. Certainly lately they do. And one of the things they do is that they actually care about their workers. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this and that's why I wanted to present this. Uh, labor actually sits on the board of the companies in uh, Germany and helps to make corporate decisions. I know here in America they're like, what? Workers actually having power? That is unacceptable. They will drive all the corporations into the ground, those greedy workers. Well, it turns out they don't. And by the way, they also help to pick the CEO. Oh, people here would go nuts over that, right? Now, uh, David uh, Leonhardt actually wrote a very good article about this in the New York Times, and he brought us some of the numbers. So you make a decision for yourself after you see the numbers on whether it works. For example, since 1985, hourly pay in Germany has gone up 30%. Here in the United States, it's only gone up 6%. I like 30% better than 6%. Well, if the pay is going up, well, unemployment must be a disaster for them, right? Not really. Here we have 9.1% unemployment. In Germany, they have 6.1% unemployment, so they're also doing better on that count. How about the top 1% of all earners? Well, we got to give it to the United States there because our rich are mega rich. So they take a much bigger portion of the pie. In 1970, actually, we were all close to tied. Top 1% had 11% of the money in Germany. In the United States, it was 9%. Actually, we were a more equitable society back in 1970 than Germany was. But today, Germany stayed at 11% and the United States shot up to 20%. So the top 1% takes so much more of the money here in the United States. One of the other things that Germany did though, to be fair, is that they also made some cuts and they made some adjustments, okay? So one of the things that they cut was unemployment. Uh, the duration and the extent of unemployment. Another thing that they cut was they reduced the incentives to retire early. But you have to understand the context in which they did that. First of all, unemployment for some age groups was as high as 32 months unemployment benefits. So you have to understand their, their benefits they get in Germany are so much better than what we have here. So they scaled that back to some degree and I think that makes sense. I think when we did welfare reform here, I thought it made sense. So should we be willing to make some cuts to get rid of our deficit? I think so. But they need to be a little bit more equitable. So when Germany went to go make those adjustments uh, for their austerity program, they actually had a very good ratio. They did 60% in spending cuts and 40% in tax increases. Okay, now 
even our so-called progressive president is saying that when we go to do austerity measures, we will be doing three times as many spending cuts as tax increases. To me, that makes no sense. And that's the beginning of the conversation. The Republicans say 0% tax increases because the rich have to get richer. Well, you know what? They said it was going to trickle down. They said it was going to work for everybody. It didn't. We have over 9% unemployment, and the German model looks better and better every single day. So wollen wir kämpfen für den nächsten Sieg. So wollen wir kämpfen für unsere Welt. So wollen wir kämpfen für den nächsten Sieg. So wollen wir kämpfen für unsere Welt. Auf roten Plätzen singt das Volk von unserer Sache, die in ihren Lauf die Revolution hält keiner auf. Auf roten Plätzen singt das Volk von unserer Sache. three hey what's up it's me john i think i know what your problem is greece your greek spirit is caught in a battle of duality torn between the aggression and tenacity of the spartans versus the wisdom and sophistication and hospitality of the Athenians. An epic struggle between Sparta and Athens, a profound 3,000 year internal struggle that we here in America have interpreted through our experience at diners. <laughs> and this guy. The point is we don't know much about world history. But Greece, to solve this, you must overcome your duality. Right now, with the hitting the police with clubs and yogurt, you're a little too Spartan. Retiring at 53 with almost full pay, a little too Plato's retreaty. But I know you can strike this balance between austerity and hedonism. I'm going to tell you a little story that I think you might find apropos. One day, a god named Zeus looked down upon the people of Earth from Olympus and thought, I will turn myself into a bull. Then, as a bull, he went down amongst the humans and f***ed a spider. <laughs> and that is why today we have coconuts. <laughs> you know who came up with that? You did. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. 
Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% of the cost of your order and soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. I'm Lee Camp, and this is your moment of clarity. As many of you know, the Republican Party, a fully owned subsidiary of Koch Brothers Industry, has decided that their number one goal is to knock the knees out from under your average working man by destroying collective bargaining, pensions, health care, and unions in general. Luckily, Obama and the Democrats have stood up to this attack with the strength of an arthritic jellyfish. When I'm arguing with someone about unions and explaining that we need strong, healthy unions to have a high standard of living in this country, I'm always amazed that the person says, well, they slow down companies and, and make them unable to compete globally so all the jobs go overseas. But don't you understand what goes on overseas in China and Indonesia and Bangladesh and other countries that 60% of Americans think are fucking foods? Don't you understand what goes on over? Haven't you heard? It's workers crammed so tight they're sitting on each other's laps working 20-hour shifts. If you lose a hand in the machine, the company doesn't stop the machine. They just announce that one lucky customer will find a wedding ring or a wristwatch in their fucking instant baba ganoush. Bathroom breaks are a privilege awarded to those workers who have been with the factory over three years and lost not more than one appendage or eyeball. There is no maternity leave. There is no daycare. But they don't need daycare because you can watch your toddler yourself seeing as he's working on the machine right next to you. Sexual harassment is frowned upon except on special harassment days which are held the first Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday of every week. You're paid 10 cents per hour, but don't go on a shopping spree just yet. You owe the company 5 cents per hour to rent the spot where you work and 1 cent per hour tip for the honor of working there. Point is, it's not a pleasant existence. And you, who claim to be pro-American, who wave the red, white, and blue when you so much as take a shit, you want America to red, white, and blow. You want us to quote-unquote be competitive with that, I think we should run as far as possible from that, like like there's a rabid Kelly Ripa behind you, or a Kathy Griffin on three espressos seeking your approval, or an Arnold Schwarzenegger who thinks you have the antidote to paternity tests. We should run from this version of America you've envisioned in which workers have no rights, cereal boxes have wristwatches inside, Triscuit boxes have wrists inside, and employee lunchrooms are sparkling clean because lunch isn't allowed. Being competitive sounds so wonderful, but there's another option, being better than, and that can be measured by workers' rights. During World War II, we could have been competitive with Hitler and seen how many Jews we could round up and how much of Canada we could invade and how silly a mustache we could have grown. And some people probably would have argued that if we weren't competitive with Germany, that all the good Jew-catching jobs would move overseas. But luckily, instead, we decided to be better than Germany, and we created our own American Jew-catching jobs.
wait, that's not right, but you, you get the point. Let's be better than the sweatshops overseas rather than trying to become them. I'm Lee Camp, and this is your moment of clarity. Get more of these at LeeCamp.net. Well, did it trickle down? Everybody screwed now. Free ride only for the biggest of the banks. They've made it well known. They don't want to pay for roads. Let me tell you something about a friend's B of A. Dead beats, tax cheats, hiding money overseas. Take this piece of shit phone, read it triple A, please. Take off Wall Street, white collar crime scene. Shut down, locked out of business temporarily. Jacking up the rate, never give a man a break Make the poor pay for the rich man's mistake Hey, fun fat cats, I propose a new tax 70% for being such huge douchebags Next crisis that you face, don't you come us and beg We ain't gonna bail you out, you can go to hell And next time, by the way, people try to rob your bank Don't you call on our cops, you can fuck yourself No, we put out your fires Democrats and Republicans are having fights over should we raise the debt ceiling or not. I've told you all along, uh, Republicans are bluffing. Wall Street has already told them you're going to raise the debt ceiling and you're going to shut up about it. Okay? And so Republicans are pretending, oh, no, 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 we got a massive trillions of dollars worth of cuts. Now, Democrats know they're pretending. Tim Geithner even said it to the press. Hey, I talked to the bankers then. They already gave these guys their marching orders and we know that they're going to give in on that, right? But they're all playing a game on us to screw all of us over so they can cut spending and cut taxes too to make the rich even richer, right? To give you a sense that that's absolute certainty, on Face of Nation, Senator Mitch McConnell said, if we can't do something really significant about the debt ceiling, then we'll probably end up with a very short-term proposal over a few months and we'll be back having the same discussion in the fall. Meaning, hey, if we really push it and we get close to that debt ceiling, don't worry about it, of course we'll raise it, and then we'll keep going on with this soap opera that's nonsense, okay? Uh, now, the reason Democrats play along, of course, is that they are 
the good cops and the good cop, bad cop that they're playing on the American middle class. So you go to uh, Senator Graham, he's on one of these programs as well, he's on Meet the Press, and he's going to talk finally with the good news, they're going to talk about revenue. Okay, f fantastic, let's check it out, clip 80. No one on the Republican side is going to vote to raise taxes, but I think many of us would look at flattening the tax code, do away with deductions and exemptions, and take that revenue to help pay off the debt. So uh, you're not opposed to some, some uh, moves that could actually create some new revenue? Yeah, one way to do that is to do away with ethanol subsidy and a bunch of other subsidies that go to a few people, take that money back into the federal treasury and pay off the debt. That doesn't raise taxes. That takes special interest groups, uh, uh, their gravy train away and helps pay off the debt. That's one way to help pay off the debt. Now, there you get excited. That sounds good, man. There's a Republican saying, hey, let's take away deductions and exemptions. Don't get excited. Here comes the huge caveats, okay? Uh, let's go to the second clip where he starts talking about Social Security. Interesting. There's no way on God's green earth you're going to balance the budget until you put entitlements on the table like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. David, what did they do? They adjusted the age slowly but surely from 65 to 67. We need to means test benefits. Everybody on this program could in the future give up some of their benefits for Social Security to keep it solvent. And you've got to do the same thing on Medicare. Slowly but surely adjust the age and upper income Americans should pay more when it comes to Medicare. But interesting that your, your party is not with you on that. The party, I mean, Paul Ryan didn't even well, include Social Security in his budget plan. And these are still areas, you say, well, we have to act like grown-ups. Nobody's really willing to go in and touch these things. Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill were grown-ups. They came up with a formula to save Social Security that slowly but surely adjusted the age. People over 55 are unaffected, but I think young Americans believe Social Security and Medicare are going to fail if we don't do something. This is all a game they're playing on you. Now, David Gregory says, well, the Republicans didn't even propose uh, raising the Social Security retirement age. And the Democrats didn't propose it either. President Obama backed away from it. Fantastic. Guess what happened? Well, at the end of last week, the AARP, the people who are supposed to look out for senior citizens the most, that's their whole job, right? Came out and said we should raise the retirement age. Why? Because Washington has agreed that they're going to raise the retirement age. Okay? So they're going to do it by hook or by crook. And it's always by crook, by the way. And so they get the ARP to provide cover for the Republicans and the Democrats. Why do they need the political cover? Because it is horribly unpopular. 84% of the country says do not touch Social Security under any circumstances. I don't care if you want to balance the budget. I don't care about anything. Do not touch it. Don't cut my benefits. What's Lindsey Graham saying? All of a sudden, well, we've got to raise the retirement age. You know, we already raised it to 67. Those geniuses, Reagan and O'Neill, did that. Tip O'Neill, the... You know, now we've got to raise it to 69. Now, I told you from day one how long I've been telling they're going to raise the retirement age. Why? Because it doesn't take a rocket scientist. All you've got to do is read the papers. Simpson and Bowles did this commission, commissioned by Obama, that the Republicans loved, stacked with 14 conservatives out of 18 members. And Simpson and Bowles came out and said, yeah, we're going to raise the retirement age to 69. The rest of it has been a tap dance to get to that point by all these frauds, the Republicans and the Democrats. So now that's a Republican. On the Democratic side, Mark Warner on these programs, and he said, hey, look, if we're going to raise the debt ceiling, we've got to do this uh, budget deal, well, what are we going to do? We're going to do uh, spending cuts and uh, tax increases. He does, they say revenue increases, right? I say, okay, great. At least we're looking at both sides. Everybody pays their fair share, right? Hmm. Well, here comes the monkey wrench, right? First of all, he says spending has to be three times. Spending cuts has to be three times as much as what we raise revenue. 
First of all, how is that fair? Why is that fair? Why is a Democrat proposing that? By the way, same exact thing President Obama proposed. 75% has to come out of the middle class and the poor, and that 25% theoretically is supposed to come out of raising taxes on the rich. But here comes the second curveball, which is the most devastating. Mark Warner, so-called Democrat, supposed Democrat from Virginia, who is no such thing, certainly no progressive. Well, maybe he is a Democrat because they're not really progressives. Comes out and says, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, we will get rid of some of those deductions and exemptions that Graham referred to. You see, because they all agree this is all nonsense, right? Uh, they all know what conclusion they want to get to. They all know how they want to trick us and how they want to rob us. So Mark Warner says, we'll get rid of some of those, but in return, we will lower taxes. <laughs> so what happened to raising taxes? What happened? No, no, no. They're going to lower taxes. Now, understand how you're going to continue to get robbed by them. Remember, 75% was already coming out of your hide, right? Now, the other 25% that is in revenue increases, well, when they take away your home mortgage deduction, well, you don't have that anymore, and that hits the middle class pretty hard. And there's a lot of exemptions that apply to the middle class, some to the rich, but a lot to the middle class. They take those away. And then in return, what do they do? They lower the corporate tax rate. So corporations win again. And now Mark Warner is talking about lowering the rate for the top bracket. So the rich actually get richer. This is a so-called democratic proposal. Don't believe them, man. Don't believe them. They're coming to rob you blind. So in the end, what happens? The middle class and the poor pay 100% of this so-called deficit reduction, and the rich pay almost none of it. Why? It's because the rich are the ones that write the laws. They bought Mark Warner. They bought the Democrats. They bought Lindsey Graham. They bought the Republicans. So in the end, you think that they're going to pay? No, they're going to get their money's worth from these slimy politicians in Washington that they bought off. Well, it ain't no use sitting and wonder why, baby. Even you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. It'll never do somehow. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. But I wish there was something you would do or say to try and make me change my mind and stay. But we never did too much talking anyway. Don't think twice, it's all right. President Obama has invited Republican and Democratic leaders of Congress back to the White House Thursday for more talks aimed at cutting the federal deficit. They have just four weeks to raise the debt ceiling or run the risk of a government default. President Obama wants a deal within the next two weeks. We know that it's going to require tough decisions. I think it's better for us to take those tough decisions sooner rather than later. NPR Scott Horsley reports on what could happen if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling. 
U.S. officials, from the Treasury Secretary to the Federal Reserve Chairman, have issued dire warnings of what will happen if the debt ceiling is not raised before the August 2nd deadline. The picture that takes shape is a calamity of almost biblical proportions. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Okay, maybe the Ghostbusters scenario is a stretch, but not by much. If a government that borrows money to pay more than 40% of its bills suddenly finds its credit card is no longer working. That means after August 3, we'd be entirely dependent upon incoming cash flows to pay our bills. Jay Powell served as Undersecretary of the Treasury during the first Bush administration. He's now a scholar at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and he looked at what would happen if the government had to operate like a shopkeeper, paying each day's bills with whatever cash is in the register. It doesn't balance very well at all. The trouble would start as soon as the government exhausts its borrowing authority, August 2nd. Taxes would keep coming in, some $12 billion the following day. But that wouldn't begin to cover the daily expenses. The problem is that $23 billion in Social Security payments are supposed to go out on August 3. And there's a really good chance that we don't have the cash to pay that. In addition to Social Security, there are bills for Medicare and Medicaid, defense contractors, and federal workers who expect to be paid. Within 24 hours, the government would be $20 billion behind and the delinquent bills continue to pile up with each passing day. Very quickly, you're dragging 20, 30, 40, 50, 75 billion dollars in unpaid bills. Just as the government is trying to decide between stiffing Social Security recipients or active duty military, a 29 billion dollar interest payment comes due on Monday, August 15th. That's also the day that 27 billion dollars worth of Treasury bonds mature. Ordinarily, the government would sell new bonds to pay off the old ones. But in these circumstances, finding buyers might not be that easy. Jim Kessler, who's with the Washington think tank Third Way, says Treasury bonds would have lost their key selling point, a rock-solid reputation for safety. They're the Volvos of investments. To get people back into Treasury bonds, you're going to have to give them some sort of deal. And that deal is bad for taxpayers, bad for the economy. To attract new buyers, the government would have to pay a higher interest rate. And Powell says that higher rate would ricochet throughout the economy. That'll affect credit card interest rates, mortgage interest rates. Every kind of consumer debt and business debt is priced off of treasuries. That's not going to help the economy. It's going to hurt the economy. It's going to hurt the housing market. The stock market would drop, and so would the value of the dollar, resulting in higher gasoline prices. Third Ways Kessler says even a short gap in the government's borrowing authority would slow economic growth at an estimated cost of some 650,000 jobs. And while the default might be temporary, Kessler says the damage would be lasting. You can cheat on your spouse and maybe your marriage will survive, but your marriage will never be the same again. And you can default on your debts as a nation and your country will survive but the way your country is viewed will never be the same again. Of course, we don't have to find out how dire these consequences are, so long as Congress and the President can make a deal before the deadline. Scott Horslate, NPR News, Washington. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Seth Michaels. This week, conservatives pounded on a familiar theme that President Obama's policies have made the economic situation worse. 
get it's where we're coming from. We're coming off a terrible recession, and so right now, eight percent looks really good. The made all of it worse. It's, no, they didn't make it worse. Yes, they would have made did. it better if we had a bigger stimulus. They in the fall of 2008, you had a financial crisis. That crisis then spread like a contagion to other aspects of the economy. Barack Obama took a bad situation and made it a thousand times worse with a massive expansion of government. Some are even saying he's doing it on purpose. No doubt the president wants to turn it around uh, and needs to turn it around. No, he doesn't. Uh, a March 2010 study in the Wall Street Journal found that 70% of economists surveyed said the stimulus package actually boosted growth and mitigated job losses. Well, speaking of media figures who have a distant relationship with the truth, on his June 23rd program, Fox's Bill O'Reilly gave viewers a lesson in... Well, something. So why is this happening? Well, it all boils down to political philosophy. President Obama is a liberal guy who believes the Fed should run the economic show. And he hired advisors who believe that as well. The administration then set out to fight the recession by spending government money, the so-called stimulus. That ran up trillions of dollars of debt. Historically, the way out of recessions is to give the private sector lower tax rates and reward people, businesses, for hiring other people. But the Obama administration has resisted that. Of course, this is the same Barack Obama who declared, quote, I am a pro-growth free market guy. I love the market, close quote. It's a pretty strange sentiment for a supposed economic nationalist. But seriously, who does O'Reilly think are Obama's left-wing economic advisors? Larry Summers? The stimulus package, a mix of spending and tax cuts, cost around $787 billion. The Congressional Budget Office estimates its 10-year cost will be slightly higher, around $820 billion, which is still miles away from trillions. And the deficit debt problems that O'Reilly is concerned with are due primarily to the George Bush tax cuts, the recession, and the Iraq-Afghan wars. Few would argue that the spending associated with economic recovery plays any major role. As for lower corporate tax rates, lots of business folks would love to pay less, sure. But if O'Reilly thinks history shows that lowering those tax rates is the way out of a recession, he must be getting his history from the same place he gets his economics. Swear the black man wants to spread the wealth. Swear the gays would go to hell. God save us from ourselves. What we don't understand Like hostility in a foreign land So line them up and lock and load But this machine won't run on fear alone And they'd appreciate your vote While you get cynical Never said a thing would change Instead, yes, we can He said, oh yes, we can I got permission from the corporate state Our economy has actually grown significantly in that since 1980, but uh, our wages, the average American wages, have completely stagnated as Robert Reich is going to show you. He's a former Labor Secretary for President Clinton. He's now a professor at UC Berkeley. And um, did you know that, that, but just one little fact before I go to the video. Did you know that in 1988 uh, versus 2008, the average American worker actually lost $400 uh, with today's money? 
So if you adjust for inflation, we make $400 less in 2008 than we did in 1988. 20 years and we lost ground. Okay. Now, how could our economy double and we lose ground? Well, Robert Reich is going to explain it in about two minutes. Let's watch. What's the problem with the economy? Let me connect the dots and show you the big picture in less than two minutes, 15 seconds. Dot one. Since 1980, the American economy has doubled in size. But adjusting for inflation, most people's wages have barely increased. Second dot. Where did all that money go? Almost all the gains have gone to the super rich. The top 1% used to take home about 10% of total income. Now it takes home more than 20%. And the super rich have 40% of the nation's entire wealth. The third dot. All this money at the top has given the super rich lots of political power, especially power to lower their tax rates. Before 1980, the top tax rate was over 70%. Now it's down to 35%. And much of their income is capital gains, subject to only a 15% tax. According to the IRS, the richest 400 Americans pay only 17%. Fourth dot. This means huge budget deficits. Tax revenues are down to less than 15% of the total economy, the lowest in 60 years. So public services are being cut at all levels of government. Our kids are being crowded into classrooms with more and more other children. Roads, bridges, levees, health care, safety nets, they're all being sacrificed. The fifth dot. Instead of joining together for better wages and jobs, many people are so scared that they're competing with other working people for the scraps that are left behind. So we get union versus non-union, public employee versus private, native-born versus immigrants. Final dot. The vast middle class, unable to borrow as it could before, no longer has the purchasing power needed to get the economy growing again, which means continued high unemployment and an anemic recovery. So you see the big picture? The only way we can have a strong economy is with a strong middle class. That is only 100% correct. And uh, I will add some things to it. You know, our tax rates go down. Well, actually, the tax rates for the rich go down, as he pointed out, so we have less money. But it's not just that. It gets redistributed, the taxes do. Since 1950, the share of corporate taxes uh, that are paid has gone down dramatically as a share of the federal revenue. Payroll taxes have gone up dramatically as a share of the federal revenue. What does that mean? That means that the costs are being redistributed from corporate America to us. Why is that happening? It's because corporations are very, very rich, and they could buy politicians who pass laws that get them lower tax rates, bigger advantages, bigger monopolies, bigger government contracts. They literally take our money, and they funnel it through those government contracts to those connected uh, companies. And then they circulate that money back into the politicians and buy them more. What does it do? As Robert Rice showed you there, it creates huge deficits. And then one more dot. Once they have those deficits, they say, well, what can we do? We had to cut spending on the middle class again. And then we have even less of a middle class. And what does that do? It creates a death spiral for the economy because nobody can buy anything. And so in the end, the rich don't wind up benefiting either. They do in the short run, no question about that, to the tune of millions and sometimes billions of dollars. But in the long run, we become a third world country. And right now, 
We are, in terms of income inequality, right between Cameroon and Jamaica. That is a disastrous place we find ourselves. That is not how you build a healthy economy. His hours bring him to his knees. He's earning much more than he needs. Poverty from which he's free turns into undirected greed. His lawyer fate, his lawyer rates and lawyer mates eating lawyer steaks. Living a life he didn't seem to choose. He just had to do something. But he didn't know what to do. Now he's greying and old, bullish and bold, fitting the mould Telling tales of shares that he sold, money that rolled, power he holds He's proud and likes to tell you loud exactly how He's wealthy now, how as a man, he made a plan Couldn't be and also ran, but when the working day is done He's run out of ideas for fun, he feels as if he isn't sure Exactly what that money's for, money's not for spending Like lives are not for ending, he can't let go of all that he's accrued He just has to do something and he doesn't know what to do. Mushrooms of the genus Amanita possess hallucinogenic effects and have been used by Siberian shamans as a psychotropic drug for centuries. However, these mushrooms are rare and often only the richest in the village can afford them, but the hallucinogenic agent passes unchanged through the urine. So the common villagers traditionally have collected the rich man's piss and ingested it in order to get themselves high. America is now in a similar position. The top 1% own the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90% and we're left standing below their penthouses getting pissed on and thanking them for the privilege. Thank you, Mr. Billionaire. It's an honor to take your trickle-down economics in my face. So if you're in this situation, there's three ways you can respond. One, you can refuse the urine, but in our case, the trickle is filled with money, so it can't easily be refused. Two, drink it angrily while finding ways to fight back, ways to interrupt the mushroom supply chain and make it a more fair system. Or three, drink the trickle happily and convince yourself that this is the way it should be and you love getting pissed on. If anyone stands up and says there's a better way there's a more fair way, there's a way that involves less urine in our eyes, then you shout them down and call them unpatriotic and perhaps a fag for good measure. Just keep taking it with a smile on your face and thank the power elite for being so generous as to piss in your general direction. Right now, most of us are choosing that third option. Thank you, billionaires, as our economy struggles to recover after being pillaged by you and your associates. Most of us fight to make ends meet, and you're actually richer than you were before the collapse. But every once in a while, your piss splatters a couple of nickels our way. And therefore, we're going to keep voting for you and your friends. We'll keep using your banks and stores, your media outlets, and your whorehouses. Just make sure to piss a little on my shoes, okay? Just promise us that you'll give us 20 cents off that blue stuff that goes in the toilet and 40 cents off that piece of plastic that makes my cell phone look snazzy. 
And not only will we keep propping you up, we'll even do your dirty work for you. We'll attack people who criticize you for pissing on us. We'll tear gas our own fucking teenagers who try to fight back against the madness. We'll listen to your propaganda and verbally attack teachers and cops for having the fucking temerity to have health care. We'll even act friendly to the banker who tells us our home has been foreclosed on because we're trying to maintain a sense of decency that you all abandoned long ago. Just please don't avert your trickle. We got no plans, no plans at all. Evil man's always transcending. Fighter like sheep, swallow everything. Always simple tins or pretending. We got no plans, no plans at all. Evil man's always transcending. Follow like sheep, swallow everything. Always simple tins or pretending. So here we go again with the breakdown of the fourth estate, and it hits on multiple levels here. Here we are once again talking about one of the most beloved social programs in our nation's history, Medicare. You know, the program that provides health care for every single person over 65 years old, not one person excluded. And it does it in a more efficient and less costly way than private insurance. Yeah, it's less costly, so of course we can't afford it. I mean, what do you think? We got money coming out of our ears like Canada, Germany, France, England, and the rest of the civilized world? We can't afford health care for our people. Let's just accept that. You think I'm kidding? Let's listen to Ruth Marcus. She's a Washington Post reporter who was a guest on Press the Meat recently. And let's just listen to the framing of the question from our good friend and corporate tool, David Gregory. So, Ruth Marcus, what wins here? Bold leadership on Medicare um, and the argument that the Democrats won't do something courageous or the Democrats who say, hey, those guys want to take away my Medicare. So what is going to win the day in the Medicare debate? David Gregory wants to know, is it the Democrats doing something courageous? And by courageous, he means cutting health care for senior citizens. That takes real courage. Standing up for conventional wisdom takes a lot of courage. Yep, takes a lot of balls to parrot exactly what every other millionaire on every other Sunday talk show has been saying. The easy move, I guess, is to be the lone wolf who actually stands up for Medicare. Hey, look at that guy taking the easy way and trying to break up the health insurance monopolies and end Big Pharma's grip on our legislators to bring down the cost of health care. Oh, what a lazy ass. Why is he taking the easy way? So what is going to win the day here? Which argument will win? The Republicans' argument that the Democrats aren't courageous and grown up enough to cut your Medicare? Or the Democrats' argument that the Republicans have been wanting to do away with Medicare ever since it was started? I regret to inform you that I think it's the latter. You regret to inform me that it's the latter? That's what you regret, Ruth? You don't regret that you are part of an Alice in Wonderland-like system in which well-spun lies tend to win over actual facts? You don't regret allowing yourself to become a mouthpiece for the Republican message system instead of actually upholding your obligation to society as a journalist? Really? We've gone from, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country, to, I regret to inform you that Democrats will make political gains by sticking up for Medicare because people 
really don't want to lose their Medicare. It just seems to me people used to be a lot better at regretting things. And I think when you were asking Senator McConnell if Medicare was the new third rail of American politics, I think the question was wrong in a sense because it's the old third rail of American mm -hmm. politics. This play has been run time after time. If you go back and look at the quotes from President Clinton back when he needed to win re-election, they sound a lot like the quotes from Democrats today about don't let those Republicans take away your Medicare. Um, Ruth, do you know why Bill Clinton said that? It was because the Republicans were trying to, now get ready, Ruth, here it comes. The Republicans were trying to end Medicare. Yes, the Speaker of the House at the time said he wanted to see Medicare wither on the vine. So that's why you keep hearing this, quote, old play, as you put it. It's because the same old pricks are trying to end Medicare, Ruth. The same old play here, Ruth, is that the Republicans scared people about Medicare in the first place by telling them it was socialism and it would end freedom as we knew it. And now they are scaring them into thinking the richest country in the world can't afford health care for its seniors. But don't let that get in the way of pretending that Democrats defending Medicare is just political theater. And according to Ruth, who, by the way, has been nominated for a Pulitzer, so according to Ruth, what's the difference between when Bill Clinton saved Medicare to when the Democrats are doing it now? The difference is that the debt is bigger, the deficit is bigger, the gap is bigger, and the, the situation is more dire. But I think that, sadly, the lesson of New York 26 is Metascare work. Did you catch that? Metascare. Ooh, I get it. You took the word Medicare, then changed it with a word that rhymes, thereby trivializing an actual issue that affects all Americans. That's very clever. Now I get why you're up for a Pulitzer. Because you, madam, are a punster. The difference is that the debt is bigger, the deficit is bigger, the gap is bigger, and the, the situation is more dire. But I think that, sadly, the lesson of New York 26 is Medicare work. But she's right. The deficit is much bigger now, and the circumstances are much more dire. So there's only one choice, right? We're going to balance the budget on the backs of senior citizens and their health care. Because a reporter for the Washington Post knows full well that there is no way in the world that America can afford to give its own citizens health care. I mean, that's expensive. What do you crazy liberals think? That we're as rich as Norway, New Zealand, Japan, Germany, Belgium, the United Kingdom, Kuwait, Sweden, Bahrain, the Netherlands, Austria, the United Arab Emirates, Finland, Slovenia, Denmark, Luxembourg, France, Australia, Ireland, Italy? No, we're not as rich as those countries. They've got money up their ass. That's why they can afford health care. But she is right. The debt is bigger. The deficit is bigger. And let me think, what happened since Bill Clinton was president? Well, there were those eight years of a Republican president six of which occurred with a Republican Congress. Mm. No, that's not it. There were, correction, are not one, but two of the longest wars in American history. But that can't be it. Think, think. I know. Old people. It must be all the old people.
and to a lesser degree, the teachers. I should have known. It's always the old people and the teachers. Okay, that was another great report by me. <laughs> uh, that was a great report. Oh, thank you very. Isn't that nice, Paul yeah. Gilmartin? Thank Do you. You have a uh, rafter here where I can hang myself from. <laughs> yeah. That was because me. That was some great impotent rage. That, that was, was some really good. It started with the rage of David Gregory, the way he phrased the question of like, um, "Are the Democrats going to show courage yes. by destroying Medicare?" And then it it just accelerated from there. I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out the Republicans' uh, talking point being uh, trying to convince Americans that they're not old. well i don't understand how they're winning the i guess i do it all comes down to people like david gregory the fact that the people who want to do all these horrible things you know roll back medicare social security give tax cuts to millionaires turn us into pretty much a banana republic with uh two uh two two americas like what john edward used to say Mm -hmm. uh they also own the media which is why these arguments keep winning the day because they keep getting repeated over and over and over and when all the guests are millionaires they Mm -hmm. don't have to worry about affording health insurance of course it's not an important topic where to was them. the media and ruth marcus and david gregory showing any of this kind of scrutiny towards us going into these wars that cost us <laughs> all this money none at all none. just just cheerleading on their part and now but now they're being very uh analytical about uh Medicare and, and how dangerous it oh, is. Oh, we can't, he can't afford it. We can't afford it. In yeah. fact, I should have brought in a clip that he just from this, uh, he also went on to say, uh, he was with talking to Dick Durbin and he was mm-hmm. like, but Senator, it, we can, this the Medicare is just isn't sustainable. Yeah. Jimmy, I can't afford to stop cancer from ravaging my body. <laughs> there is a small country 4,000 miles away that has citizens that want to harm me. Hi, Jay. It's Michael from Glen Burnie. Just listened to your June 20th episode on that neutrality. Um, just want to comment on two things. Uh, first off, I wanted to comment on the, uh, uh, the angle against, or the angle that the, the GOP has been taking uh, about what net neutrality is supposed to be. And uh, while I don't disagree with, you know, with that being hyperbole and if nothing else, certainly a slippery slope, I think... I think people were overlooking kind of you know, at least at least a valid point buried in there, even if that wasn't specifically what they were going after. Is that uh, to me, it seems reasonable to at least suggest that since what net neutrality would be doing is fine, doesn't change the fact that this would in fact be the first regulation on the internet by the government, and would conceivably open the door to more regulation on the internet by the government. Now. I don't subscribe to the slippery slope theory. I, I don't agree that that is where this is headed necessarily or even probably. Um, and, uh, and I 100% agree with net neutrality, but I just wanted to put that out there as a nugget just to, you know, nugget of thought just to, you know, I don't know, not completely dismiss their arguments, but at least understand possibly where some people are coming from with the outrage against it.
Hey Jay, this is John in Tulsa. I just wanted to call and say thank you for the show. Uh, I just recently became a member. I've been listening for a few weeks, maybe a couple months at this point. And uh, uh, unfortunately, being in Oklahoma, not exactly surrounded by a lot of people uh, with a progressive voice. And so it's good, uh, you know, a few times a week to be able to hear that. I tried to catch up on a bunch of back episodes and everything. And uh, I really appreciate the social networking option that you have made easily available to listeners. Unfortunately, all of my social networks are intricately tied in with business that I run in Tulsa. And that makes it, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid of reciprocation uh, from uh, or people who do not agree with the progressive voice. So I can't do that. But thanks for all that you do. And uh, good luck spreading the word. Hi, Jay. My name is Ben. I'm calling you from Houston, Texas. The kudos go to Wendy, who left voice mail uh, and you played it. I think she was calling from Portland, somewhere from the Northwest. But she was calling to complain about, or maybe not complain about, to comment on um, progressives, and particularly male progressives who use derogatory terminology toward women, things like the uh, douchebag and the, uh, the C word, which even I blush to say. And I'm just calling because I laughed through her entire presentation. She made a good point, but she made it in a way that was humorous and it was really enjoyable. So kudos to her uh, for doing that and for you, uh, to you for giving her that forum. Thanks for uh, all that you do and I'll just uh, sit back and listen to what you have to say. Hey Jay, Todd calling from the City of Angels. I just wanted to say congratulations on show 500 and more. And to thank you for turning me on to the Young Turks and Dan Carlin and Citizen Radio, David Passman. I mean, the list goes on and on. I, I feel liberated and tortured with my newfound knowledge and um, supremely confident that I can really talk down you know, not only the right, but the Obamatons walking around. Um, you know, I couldn't agree with the caller that a couple weeks ago that uh, was calling for, you know, concentration on fair elections. You know, I mean, we're not going to get anywhere unless we have fair elections, you know. I wish every left-sided movement would basically, you know, drop what they're doing and uh, put a coalition together to, you know, work for clean and fair elections, you know, because we're not going to get anywhere without that. And um, to the lady who called in about uh, Lee Camps, use of the C word and uh, douchebag and stuff, um, you know, I can't speak to and I know for myself that, uh, you know, when I use those words, I'm not thinking of any, any gender bias at all, you know, it's like uh, the C word's like the most foul word that I can, that I can think of, which my Australian friend thinks is funny, because everybody goes around Australia, I guess, and calls each other a cunt, um, you know, so whenever I'm using those words, you know, I'm not thinking gender bias at all. Um, but I appreciate her call and uh, her concern. It gives uh, more food for thought. Anyway, Jay, here's to another 500 shows. Hi, Jay. It's Michael from Glen Burnie. Wanted to comment on the Dan Savage segment. And uh, I got to say, this may be the first time I've ever almost completely disagreed. <laughs> 
with almost everything that was said in one particular segment. First off, you know, I don't, I completely disagree with the concept of if it's online, it's not real and it doesn't count. Um, that's BS. <laughs> if it's immoral in real life, it's immoral in online. And you may not be physically sticking your dick in someone, but God damn it, that's what your intent is, and somebody else is getting off on it, too. And it really doesn't matter if you can justify it by saying, well, shit, it's what men do, whatever. Uh, it kind of matters what, what your wife thinks, uh, or a significant other, really. Okay, fine, it's what men do, but if your wife isn't comfortable with you doing it, that's probably not the smart thing to do, and it's probably not the right thing to do. And it's kind of a dick move. <laughs> I, I just, I, I really don't think there's any excuse for that kind of behavior in public office or in private. Now, that's the that's the private conversation. You know, I, I do agree that private lives really don't have much bearing on public on public uh, uh, lives as far as you know being being forced to resign because of infidelity or something. If you're not doing anything uh, unethical as far as your job goes. That being said, there are some facts that I think do kind of weigh on the ethical considerations of what Anthony Weiner did. I believe some of the pictures he took were in the uh, were were in the con congressional gym. So, kind of take that as if I was in my office taking sex pictures of myself and sending it to my girlfriend or, or wife or whatever. Uh, and they caught me doing that. What you know? What would be? What would my job do to me for that? Uh, I don't know. I guess they probably wouldn't be happy about it. Um, I don't know if I call someone to resign for that, but whatever. So I, I totally disagree with what Dan Savage was saying with regards to it's the internet. Whatever. It's men. Whatever. You know, I'm I'm a free I'm a I'm a free mind open-minded kind of person. I have no problem with sex and, and what it is, but I do think that there are some morals <laughs> regarding sex that don't have to be derived from some imaginary sky fairy. I think there are just some laws of common decency and respect, and, you know, if, if having that open sexual relationship is what you need, that's fine. Talk to your wife about it first and make sure she's cool with it. Kind of my, kind of, kind of seems common sense to me, but what do I know? Well, at any rate, thanks for everything you do, Jay. I really do love the show. Uh, a little late, but congratulations on the 500 episodes, and uh, look forward to hearing your next show. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I just want to respond to the last message we heard today from Michael and Glenn Burney's a regular caller to the show. And I just want to say that I thought that he missed the point of, of what Dan Savage was talking about a little bit. I think that, you know, I didn't really disagree with anything Michael said in the way he said it, but I think that he missed what uh, what Dan Savage was saying. You know, I didn't cover the Wiener issue on this show um, almost at all because I hated it and uh, wanted to ignore it. And you know, but I, I did include a couple of clips that were in reference to the Wiener issue, but they were 
only in reference to the way the media treated the issue. That was the angle that I wanted to come at that story from. And so the Dan Savage clip was the first one of those clips that I used. And the way I heard his entire rant, you know, about 60 or 70% of the drive of what he was saying, I think was directed at, you know, not what Anthony Weiner did, not defending his actions or not defending his actions, you know, 60 or 70% was, was directed at hatred of the media of how they treated Weiner for it. And I think that of his, you know, 10 minute rant, the main drive of what he was getting at can be summed up with this really short segment. I realize I'm shouting now. I, I just get upset when I see everyone pretend to not know what they do know about human sexuality and the way it works and this sort of willful obtuseness on the part of the media that plays into American sex phobia and hypocrisy about sex, this posturing. So that's how I saw the clip and why I put it in the show and why it was in a show focused on media issues rather than like Congress issues or, or you know, whatever else. You know, it was it was about the media primarily. And Dan Savage definitely did touch on some things that Michael was objecting to, definitely sounding like he was at least somewhat excusing Wiener's actions, if not entirely excusing them because he wasn't technically cheating or, you know, whatever. And if you want to object to that, that I have no problem with whatsoever. Uh, but that's not why... I put it in the show, you know, the argument that I wanted to get across was that the way the media was acting was ridiculous because they were treating Wiener like he was, you know, an addict. You must be a sex addict or you must be an alcoholic in order to, to do these things. And I'm definitely a, a believer in the idea that the more we know about each other, the more we realize how screwed up everyone is and it kind of becomes normalized in a good way. And, you know, and don't get confused because I just said people are screwed up. But it, it's like the more people who come out as gay, the better it is for society because more and more people realize, oh, this isn't really a completely strange and rare thing. It actually happens all the time. And there are really normal people in my family who are like this. And so he's way more normal than anyone's willing to admit. But the more we learn about each other, the more we're going to learn, oh, it turns out a lot of people do this. And it doesn't mean he's addicted to sex or alcohol. It just means either he has an unhealthy marriage and so he does these things uh, or maybe he has a really, really healthy marriage and his wife knows about it. Uh, so anyways, that's way more than I ever hoped to talk about this issue. Now I just want to say, as I have been, I want to encourage you guys to continue sharing individual clips from the show. Pick your favorite clips and share them on your social networks or by email by going to bestoftheleft.com and clicking on the easy-to-use links uh, provided for you. But today especially, check out the music video that I played today. Uh, there is a full video that goes along with it. It is powerful. It's great. It was uh, produced by Chris Priest, whose name you may have heard mentioned on the show before because he's been helping out in all sorts of different ways for a really long time. And he's one of the founding members of the Boston chapter of U.S. Uncut. And that video was produced in conjunction with that organization as they went protesting Bank of America for uh, you know, skipping out on their taxes and, and, you know, lobbying for tax holidays and all those sorts of things that corporations do. So they've been doing great work. And, uh, and I thought that he produced a great video. So I definitely want you to check that out and please share that on all your networks, spread it as far as and wide as we possibly can. 
And then finally today, I want to thank the volunteers, Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, and Emerson, with a special thanks to Lauren for all the great work that they are doing, and to a couple of members, Wendy W. signed up for her leftist monthly membership back on August 24th and has stuck with the show since then, and uh, James G. signed up for a communist membership, went ahead and paid for a full year in advance on April 9th, so huge thanks to Wendy and the very generous James. As you guys surely know by now, I simply couldn't do it without you. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh, oh, oh.